Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast 2019 edition, so to speak. I am your host, or one of your hosts. Which one, I don't know. But I'm going to call myself Adam Duritz for today. And I'm here with my compatriot. I think I'll be James Campion just for today. Just for today. We'll switch next week. We'll trade. That sounds good. I'll be Adam next week. How's life? Uh, It's good. Yourself? Uh, Pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good, actually. It is amazing because right now it is not fit for man nor beast outside. It is in the single digits. When I left my home this morning, it was negative two. Negative two. But it's going to be a short-lived, as they say, because it, did you get snow? Cause no, like and I'm just a brushing maybe at one night. I am furious. Yeah. I just want – I'm tired. Look, rain. I, I don't mind cold weather. I really don't. <laughs> I like the winter. I like the briskness of it. I love winter in the East Coast. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like winter rain. Yeah, and you really, really, really want snow. And this is yeah. becoming like a thing now because I think since you and I have been working together, you might have had maybe three days of real good snow. One yeah. of them was November. Remember we were talking about that? Yeah, we had one just early this year. Right, right after we got home from tour, we had snow, but then it was gone. Yep. We had a snowfall the other day, but also that didn't, didn't really land at all. You, you blinked and it was gone. It was scary by me last night, the wind and everything. I thought, oh, here comes the power going out, but it didn't. So. Oh, that must be a huge hassle out there. Well, we do have a, a generator. The problem is, because I am not a handyman in any way, shape, or form, I just never think. My brother-in-law every year helps me, sets it up, changes the spark plugs on it, just says, put gas in this. <laughs> I said to my wife last night, she goes, ooh, it's whipping up, man. We might lose power. I'm like, there's no gas in the generator. So, yeah, that would have really sucked. <laughs> you get in trouble with that when you actually have a generator yes. and the only reason it's not on is that you forgot to put gas in it during wintertime. Yeah. You deserve everything you get for that one. And trust me, I would have gotten my car, left, and put gas in it. But that would have sucked last night. Man, was it cold. And I mean, everything, it kind of snowy rained on Saturday. Everything was frozen. It was it was like an ice rink. Literally, because my, my, I live on a lake, so my wife and her, uh, my wife. My daughter, my wife, was watching them, and her two friends went skating. And let me tell you, is there something about this? My wife mentioned this the other day. I have to ask you. So what is it about kids who will plow through anything to play? Like, it doesn't matter what the weather is. Now, I remember about there playing football in brutal temperatures when I was a kid. But now I can't even imagine. They were out there. It might have been 25 degrees on Saturday. They were out there for like two hours skating on the lake. Right. Uh, well, it's because you'll do whatever you can do for fun. Now, for fun for them is playing and running around. Right. Fun for you at this point is lying <laughs> flat somewhere, possibly with oxygen mask on. I don't know. I mean, that's a, so we get to a point in our life where, you know, fun is just like <laughs> more indoor activities. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I mean, I love walking around in the snow. I love I love everything about life in New York in the snow. I, I just wish it was here. You know, we went to uh, – we went to see Marie Marie Taylor play uh, the other night in her band Azure, and uh, I don't think she's played with them. In, like, Who I love, years. I have their first record. It's fantastic. Yeah, and they were cool. They, they played the other night, but it was like pouring. You know, it's cold and it's pouring. I, I didn't realize it was raining so hard. I, I was I'd been inside all day, and we went to go out a Saturday night, and we're going to Brooklyn to the Bell House to see them play. And, man, it's fucking pouring. You know, and, and did you take yeah. a train out there? No, nah, we just at that point we just grabbed a, a cab because it would have involved some walking. It's Yes. It's just not in the rain. You know, New York, everything about New York is set up for you to be able to get anywhere you want without a car. You can do whatever you want in New York. It's so easy because of the subways mm-hmm. and because walking is so pleasant and there's nothing, there's nowhere like where it's really that it's bad to walk. But 
However, rain is the thing that fucks everything yes, up. Yes, even does. snow is not that bad, but rain. Yeah, rain screws it up because you know you can just brush off snow, but rain that's different. So yeah, we went. Well, the show was great. Um, and I was so glad we went, and we got to hang out afterwards with uh, with Maria. And uh, I, I said I had a great time, but the rain—it's a—it's a huge pain. What's this thing about life itself? You were telling me the film life itself. Yeah, because I—I'll I, tell you after this. But I, I thought you were talking about something else entirely. What, what is this? Who's in this movie? Life itself. Yeah. Um. The I'm bad with names. Okay. The gentleman that was in um, Inside Llewellyn Davis. He was also in the Star Wars movies. Yes, he was he, Oscar Isaac. Very good. See, you're great with the names. And the beautiful young woman who was in House and has done some other things, too. I believe she's a British actress. I believe. I can't I don't sure. think she is. Okay. And it's Olivia Wilde. Nice. Yes, they are in it. But it's, a, it's an ensemble cast because it's about this couple for most of the film. I, I was telling Adam uh, prior, or I think when <laughs> By I— By the way, I greatly admire your use of ensemble. <laughs> no ensemble for you. Just, just it's an ensemble. It's ensemble. Yeah, because I, I I blow homage here all the time. I always use the H, which all my friends who know something about French give me shit for. Uh, so um, I'm trying to make a comeback with ensemble. So uh, yes, it's an ensemble piece. By the way, I, I think your ensemble today is, is the oh, lovely, I thank you, the, thank you very the much. Hold the sweater. The yes, I appreciate your verbiage. Around. See, I've come around. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so um, inside joke. So yes, inside so we, joke. I think that we did on the air. We did, you mentioned it, okay, yeah, 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 an opening, yes. Yeah. Uh, so the um, the film that Adam is mentioning is that I mentioned to him. My wife and I were looking something to watch a couple of weekends ago, and we stumbled on this real. I thought was a really intense, well done, well written, well acted film called Life Itself. It's an Amazon Prime original, and Amazon is right there with Netflix now. They're producing some really great stuff, not only uh, for their uh, streaming service, but also for. For films, I mean, they are now producing all the Woody Allen stuff. They're doing a lot, you know. They're producing actual theatrical releases. But this movie was a theatrical release style, independent, great film. Uh, the music was really great. The use of Dylan in it, especially "Time Out of Mind," that record runs sort of a parallel to the story of this couple. But the great thing about the movie is, just when you feel like you have the movie pegged, it takes you on these different right and left turns. That's the thing that Adam and I have I've talked about. Probably on this podcast, but other uh, when we were working on the book, just the movies that I love, like Birdman, which are unique in their own sense. They're good movies, but I love the fact that that movie has a unique style of editing, and then or other films the way they do that. So that this movie I thought had a lot of that, and I, I recommended it to he and Zoe. So I'm dying to see what you think of it. Well, here's what I thought of it initially. Sure, I thought I had already seen it, <laughs> and uh, and did you? Yeah, and I, I want I meant to talk to you about it. Because I, I I have seen Life Itself, and I loved it, and it's one of my favorite documentaries ever made. I know. I see the look upon your face. See, that's the problem. There is a movie from about, oh, I don't know, a few years ago called Life Itself, which is the documentary about the life, well, and, and death of Roger Ebert. Oh, yes. That was excellent. Yeah, it's a great documentary about, about his whole life, but also about him dealing with cancer uh, and it takes away his jaw. Yeah, and they interview him after the, and it's it's quite yeah. striking, obviously him like after you know he has his he had jaw cancer, is that right? Yeah, and so it's you know, and uh, it uh, it was directed by Steve James, who also directed um, 
Hoop Dreams. I don't know if you ever saw Hoop oh, Dreams. Oh, yes. But one of the greatest documentaries, documentaries ever done. Yes. You know, Hoop Dreams is about a four-hour movie. This uh, documentarian and a couple partners decided to start filming the lives of these two Chicago high school kids as they entered high school, I think, really. And it goes through their high school time. And, in, you know, they're, they're both basketball stars. And uh, what's going to happen to them? And they, and they follow them through their lives as they, you know go through high school and then apply to college and they struggle in different ways. And man, it's an incredible, I mean, they were just there for this chunk of time in these kids lives. And it is an incredible documentary. And he also did the same documentary of Roger Ebert. Um, yeah. cause they were very close friends and it's an, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie about, you know, someone who had a pretty big effect on my life. And if you're a movie lover who grew up, you know, in our age yes, to there to see, uh, at the movies and what was the original one called? I think uh, it was at the movies and then they changed it to something else. No, it wasn't. It was, to, it it was, was him, called something when it was on PBS. Gene Siskel. Yeah, I remember when it was on PBS. The early, early days. You're right. Sneak previews. Sneak it was called sneak previews Pre- and then later it was called. Very good. They changed it to at the movies and they, when they left, I think, PBS onto other stations. Right, they put them up in like this balcony setting. Yeah. But originally yeah. it was called uh, sneak previews. But they were the first one, the thumbs up thing, which everybody has kind of perpetuated yeah. since then. But those guys, the thumbs up, thumbs down. They had some really great – you, if you go on YouTube, you'll find some really great debates that these guys have about, uh, you know, over movies because they were doing that show from the mid-70s on, uh, both of them Chicago uh, movie critics, uh, just Gene Siskel, is that right? Yeah, Gene yeah. Siskel and Roger Ebert. And um, it, they're great debates about, you know, like Taxi Driver and uh, Raging Bull or, you know, E.T. or, you know, uh, Out of Africa. It's great because these movies are immortal now and these two guys are reviewing them as it's coming out and and their debates are fantastic but roger ebert first was a great writer and his his uh books on film are must reads for any film student uh yeah i mean they really championed a lot of the the young directors that became like a huge deal you know Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s uh i don't know when that show started it would have been let's see 75 75 75, i don't remember seeing it that early probably but you know, by the end of the 70s, I, I remember watching it, you know, I was absolutely dedicated to watching it. Like, And I, that's what you needed to watch if you wanted to see trailers, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean, before the internet. And uh, if, you want, before you, if you wanted to see a trailer and if you wanted to see people actually discussing it as opposed to reading a long-form review. Um, and it was a great way for people in the Midwest and uh, in other places that didn't have the New York critics or the L.A. critics in their ear all the time. To because um, we always had Gene Shalit in New York who'd come on right before a movie and you know give you a few clips and and talk about the movie. Uh, Rona Barrett, remember Rona Barrett? You probably don't remember. Oh, yeah, these yeah, are, sure, yeah sure. you sure you do? Because yeah. um, these these were I thought were very provincial uh, uh, critics, but um, those two guys were huge stars and they were very very influential on the movie. But but you could tell much like we try to do on this podcast, you could tell those guys loved their subjects. Yeah. They weren't just doing it because it was a job. They loved it. And the, the, the life itself, uh, like Adam was saying, is a great, great documentary about the love of this man and how he dedicated his entire life to celebrating the art form of film. It really is. Now, am, am I getting the title of the film I'm telling you wrong, the Amazon film? No. And what I realized you were talking about a different film was because we were on Amazon Prime watching uh... – the John Ryan series the other night, and then trying to find uh, the Foresight Saga, the Damian Lewis, sh- the BBC show, based on John Galsworthy's books. Hmm. Uh, I finally just got up out of my laziness and walked to the theater and 
my theater and got the the DVD done off the wall because it wasn't available. You're a better man than me. Yeah, huge, huge effort to walk the theater (laughs) into the house. I never do that anymore. Fucking lazy as can be. Uh, Uh, It's funny, the the Roger Ebert thing, we're talking about it because, like, they're such opposites on the thing and I found, you know, they they really, really, really didn't like each other for a long time. Yes. Uh, And they objected, both of them, to needing the other person to be there at all. Um, And, uh, and yet it, it was brilliant television. And it, I, I, later in life, they actually became very good friends, close friends. You know, I think uh, even if – and they they cared a lot about each other even if they kind of weren't talking much because it had just – I think – I mean, I don't know if they became – I guess they did, but – I think a, they did. I think the film depicts that Gene Siskel – because Gene Siskel got sick and died first. Yeah, yeah. And that was – yeah, they were very – that's a great story because it is a great story about two people who work together with huge egos, certainly, and huge senses of opinions. That's the whole reason why they did that together. I always found it fascinating, and I think they touch upon it in the documentary, but I remember when it happened. Gene Siskel thought that Saturday Night Fever was the greatest film in the 1970s, and wax poetic from the moment it came out all the way, and Gene and, and Robert Ebert hated it. That I, mean, was, I mean, normally they'd be... 40%, 60%. This is a case where one guy thought it was a piece of utter shit and the other guy thought it was a masterpiece. Well, I remember them having discussions like that on more than one occasion. And it's funny because they were they were perfectly suited to be – they were rival uh, movie critics for rival newspapers in the same town. Roger Ebert was the Chicago Sun-Times critic right, right. and Gene Siskel was the Chicago Tribune critic. Uh, there's a, a quote in here uh, – that Roger Ebert wrote after Siskel's death in 1999. He says, We both thought of ourselves as full-service, one-stop film critics. We didn't see why the other one was quite necessary. We had been linked in a Faustian television format that brought us success at the price of autonomy. No sooner had I expressed a verdict on a movie, my verdict, than here came Siskel with the arrogance to say I was wrong, or for that matter, the condescension to agree with me. It really felt like that. It was not an act. When we disagreed, there was incredulity. When we agreed, there was a kind of relief. In the television biz, they talk about chemistry. Not a thought was given to our chemistry. We just had it. Because from the day the Chicago Tribune made Gene its film critic, we were professional enemies. We never had a single meaningful conversation before we started to work on our TV program. <laughs> Alone together in an elevator, we would study the numbers changing above the door. Wow, that's a great admission. And it was uh, it's very interesting that that kind of thing can turn into... Great television, and not in the way today I feel like it is. Like we often, especially on the news programs, they want to invite different people from different walks of life and different, uh, well, political parties. Really, is what it is right. to uh, to talk about stuff, and they yell at each other, right? And they try and see who could talk the loudest and and say the most outrageously insulting things to each other. And this wasn't like that. No. I mean, they did insult each other occasionally. They did, but, in, they but definitely... in a wry way. The way, you know, did you see the film about uh, the best of uh, frenemies with uh, about um, William F. Buckley and uh, what's his face? What's oh, uh, I know who you're talking about. They, they did that show together. Uh, yeah, they threw the two of those together. Gore Vidal? Yeah, Gore Vidal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those guys despise each other and said really hateful things, but they did it in such an erudite, literate way. It was fun. Now, I'm not saying Siskel and Ebert did it that way. In fact, I never got the feeling watching that show that there was any animosity between the two of them. They just came at each other very strongly about their opinions, and that's why we all watched it. You know, But it turns out that those guys really did not. It was oil and water from the very beginning, and that's a very, that is true. It's a very strange coupling, but it made for great TV.
Yeah, yeah. it did. Uh, I didn't realize this. Roger Ebert was the first film critic to win the Pulitzer Prize. I probably read that somewhere when he died. For criticism, but, yeah. yeah. I'd forgotten that. Anyways, it, that's a great movie too, and it's really worth seeing. Uh, but that's when I, when I, when I, you had told me that, and I kept meaning to tell you, yeah, I've seen it. Of course, I've seen it. It's brilliant. I own it. I have it in the theater. You know, it's a great. I love that movie. I kept meaning to say this to you, and then before I got a chance to, I looked through Amazon Prime and saw Life itself, and thought, okay, Oh wait, <laughs> he's talking about something different, right? And yeah. I didn't even realize that that's the name of that film, but that is now that you bring it up. Yeah, that is a great movie. I have to watch it again now. I really want to watch it again. It's riveting because it takes you through his final. I mean, he's he's you know, he was in remission, but then he eventually succumbed. And don't they take him through his final days? I think it ends with him dying. I don't remember if it does actually. I can't remember. I love the earlier parts of it too, where it talks about his like his life and what a like a bon vivant kind of man about town oh, in yes. the bars he was. You oh know, yes, big a raconteur. You know, yes. he'd come up from you know in those, you know. The old, the old, the old like guys in the forties, you know, and and the thirty, you know, those guys that he that were the old guys when he came up, and 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 the the old school newspaper bars in Chicago that he had been a young man in, and and the literary nature of it, you know, the almost round table ish sort of ideal of barroom raconteurs, and how he was very much that kind of a guy, and I I love that, I I love their well, I wouldn't say their portrayal of him, it's it's his life, but uh, but the way they do it is really and and his honesty about it. The 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 that that rite of passage that you have as a young journalist. I, I've always made the joke, you know, I'm a big cigar smoker, but I I learned how to smoke cigars. Learned my grandfather smoked them a lot, so it reminded me of my childhood. But when I first got to Yankee Stadium and I used to work in the press box, they would uh, everybody smoked, and fifty percent of those guys smoked cigars, especially in the writers uh, section. And I was I was sitting next to a gentleman, um, Hispanic gentleman, uh, who was a photographer for the New York Times. And he said, you want a cigar? And for some weird reason, I said yes, but I had never smoked a cigar before. And I had two puffs of this thing, and I had to excuse myself <laughs> to go into the bathroom. And I remember violently throwing up in the bathroom at Yankee Stadium. But after that, slowly but surely, I, I, it's, a, it's one of those moments where you go, yeah, I'm going to have to learn how to smoke a cigar here because I'm the only guy not. <laughs> you know. Um, or, or Pete Hamill's wonderful book about journalism in New York called The Drinking Life, uh, which – it reflects a lot of what uh, Ebert was talking about. And then it got to the point where Ebert became like sort of this master of ceremonies. Didn't he kind of take over that whole bar scene in Chicago and become like this, you know, five o'clock? It's, you know, yeah, yeah, happy hour did, yeah, guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is great. Yeah, that's a great film. I'm glad you mentioned that. Life itself. And I'm dying to see what you guys think of uh, the film I was just mentioning. And I can't remember the other actors in it. Wait, now, what were you saying? What were you doing at Yankee Antonio, Stadium for those? Antonio, Antonio Banderas is in, is in that film, too. But what were you doing at Yankee Stadium? I did a couple of jobs. I, I, was, um, I had my own baseball show for a local TV sh- uh, station called The Extra Inning, where I would interview players long before the game started about uh, – their Little League days or the, the, the things that inspired them to play or the things they love besides baseball. And then I expanded it into interviewing uh, baseball writers like Robert Kramer, and that's how I met Roger Kahn and ended up working for him, uh, and, and other things. It was like a baseball-related show, but really an interview show. And, um, and then after that, I got hired to do uh, basically Q&A for an independent production company that used to sell tape to Sports Channel and everything. And that's how I met my friend Rob Bastarino who ended up – uh, running Westchester, Westchester County for a few years. He and I used to do the Westchester uh, basketball and football games. So I used to go down to Yankee Stadium. In 89, 90, 91, I was down at Yankee Stadium like and Shea Stadium uh, three or four times a week. So 
uh, you know, I got to know a lot of those guys, a lot of my heroes too, like Mike Lupica and Bill Madden, uh, um, you know, uh, Jack Anderson. Uh, I was just telling my wife the other day with the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the Jets being in the Super Bowl uh, passed. And I remember watching that when I was a kid with my dad and Jack Anderson wrote this. Uh, oh, no, excuse me. I got it wrong. Dave Anderson, Jack Anderson, a different writer. Dave Anderson of the New York Times had written this wonderful book called Countdown to Super Bowl. He was he's like the dean of the New York sports writers. But at the time, he was the uh, beat guy for the Jets. Uh, we were in a in a in a elevator going up during the subway series at chase stadium and i found myself in this elevator with dave anderson i said dave uh i just want to let you know mr anderson i said i just want to let you know that that book was huge to me i, I you know i follow the jets and i was a big fan he goes oh my god i can't believe he goes if you have that book bring it in i'll sign it so i did and he signed it for me and a couple of days later i asked him so what do you think who's going to win the world series he goes well here's my thinking the Yankees have Derek Jeter, and the other team doesn't. <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's what I was doing there then and, and also getting violently sick on cigars. So, why wow, this has been some first 20 minutes of this podcast. I'm just going to say it's interesting because when I – when uh, I had been gone from Cal for a while and, you know, mostly on tour, and in 2001 uh, – 2001, I think – uh, Tom Holmo left, and uh, uh, Jeff Tedford became the football coach at Cal. You know, and I, I knew him. I, I met him early on before he, uh, with some friends, and you know, he basically, you know, came out to some shows, and they said, you know, and basically made it clear I was welcome to come out and hang out at practice. You know, and I, I met a lot of the coaches through him, and I had friends who worked at Cal then, and. Uh, so I used to go to hang out at the practices just to watch football practice, and but I'd always end up sitting up in the stands with uh, Bruce Adams, who retired a few years later, but was a sports columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner, uh, and Jay Heater, who wrote for like the SF Mercury, I mean the San Jose Mercury News, and. I think with the Tribune at times, and uh, we would all be up there in the stands, and we would sit around and talk and watch. You know, I'd pick their minds for stuff about it, and you know, they were real sports writers. And you know, at sometimes, especially when I went with the team at away games, uh, I would early on before I got comfortable like standing on the sidelines with the team, uh, I would sit in the press booth a few times with those guys because they were cool with me being up there. And but you know, it's it's a real rule. Like there's no, no cheering, cheering in the, the press, press box, box you know, yes, like, sir. and I, you know, I, I, you know, that was hard being up there with those. It was interesting being up there with them all talking. And of course it's not the cigar laden thing. It's right. And you weren't with the press. You were with the, were you with the press or you were with the coaches? No, at that point I'm with the press because I oh, mean, yeah. the coach invited me there, but I met a lot of the writers because I would be in the, in uh-huh. the stands during practice days. Yes. So they're the people I'd know when I was at a game, say by myself, if my friends were working, like Roxy could be calling a game on the radio. Right. So he wouldn't be hanging out with me. So I'd be on my own sometimes. So I would just be in the press box because it was, you know, and I did that a few times, but it was hard to be there and not make a sound. Oh, yeah. And you know, they don't want, I mean, I was, I was there during a time when, and this was in like way later than, you know, when sports writers, like, you know, the Damon Runyons, you couldn't even go, holy shit, what a catch. Couldn't even say that. Like, nobody said anything. Sometimes somebody would whistle or go, woo, or something, like if there was a really great catch for either team or, or some crazy shit happened. But it was quiet. And it's even crazier in football because it's all blocked in because it's cold. If you go to Giant Stadium and sit in the press box, you don't hear shit. 
Yeah. It's all blocked in. So everybody is like, all you hear is tapping of... It wasn't that quiet where I was in these press boxes, you know, and they'd be mul- they're be they multi-leveled because there's a lot of writers covering mm-hmm. them then and covering, you know, the Pac-12 football is a pretty sure. big deal. But, uh, you know, they they would talk about stuff and they'd be like, whoa, great catch. But you weren't allowed to cheer for anyone. You right. could be, you could, you could, and there was definitely talking that went on. You know, we all sat around and shot the shit, but... You know, it was it was it was wild being in the press booth with those guys, listening to them talk about things and uh, getting their reflections on things all through. Uh, you know, the in the pra- the practice afternoons were what I really enjoyed. Sitting up in the stands while there, you know, there's a lot of different uh, football practices can be really complicated things. There's usually they break down in positions. There can be ten groups of people doing things. So you can watch all kinds of different things. Oh yeah, football practices to. are fascinating. Yeah, and uh, I I really loved it, and I loved hanging out with those guys. You know. And it got to a point where at one point, uh, Roxy couldn't do, he was doing play-by-play sometimes on the radio. Uh, he was doing all the play-by-play for basketball, but not really the football. But he would do color sometimes for football. But there was a game where he was busy. It was a game Cal was playing at Southern Mississippi. It was the last game of the season before the bowl games. Cal's ranked like five in the country, four in the, four in the country right then. And, uh. Roxy had a basketball game. He couldn't do the color for football, and they asked me to do it. So I had. I spent a week taking notes, interviewing the coaches, picking the brains of all the sports writers, too, and then, you know, flew with the team down to uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Took my dad with me for the trip. He had a, a blast. He had never been on the sidelines before. And uh, did the color. I mean, the, did the sideline reporting for the team for that game. It was funny because before the game, they were a very famous a student section was very famous for being incredibly rude and incredibly insulting and picking on people. And they started talking shit to me when I was standing there. So I turned around, and my dad's like, wow, this must be uncomfortable. I'm like, just give me a second. Hold on. And I just walked up into the stands. I just walked right up into the stands and started talking to them. And we were giving each other shit. And, but they loved it that I came up there and talked to them, and they stopped after that. They, they teased everybody else, but they didn't bother me at all. Uh, and I did the, the color that day. And uh, it was a blast. But I remember the night before the game, we all went to this incredible barbecue place. Me and my dad and all the writers. Because the coaches and the team were busy that night. But me and my dad and all the writers went to, and the radio guys too, went to this incredible barbecue place in Hattiesburg run by this woman. I mentioned it to someone the other day who lives there. And they were like, oh my God, you went to, and it was, it was unbelievable. But I remember that it, when it closed down, we couldn't find any taxis back. So the, the, the cooks... When they got off work, they all drove us back to our hotel. Um, For some reason, I think maybe you've told me the story, but did this get any press that you did color on a Cal game? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, maybe I I had done it. I had done like halftime reporting a lot, and I, you know, I'd been asked, interviewed at halftime of many basketball games and football. I mean, I oh, I saw you one time. I think I've mentioned this to you when I first met you that I saw you one time at a Cal game. Uh, you were on the sidelines for the whole game. It might have been a bowl game, and someone interviewed you at some point in the game. Well, after I mean, you know. By that time, when I was doing that sideline reporting, that's where I spent most of my time at the games, on the sideline, because I had become very close to the coaches and, uh, you know, after a few years, and I, I spent most of my time there. But at first, I wasn't as comfortable going down the sideline. So, I, you know, I'd spend some time in the press booth, which was fun. Um, well, that's where you should see again. I mean, football is tough to watch at the sideline level. You, you can't see the nuances of how everything's happening. It's better to see it higher up. But there's something fascinating. I, I used to love watching high school games at that level. Because the kids are very emotional. 
I guess it's the way it is the way it, it, it must be that way in college. I haven't spent a lot of time on college sidelines. I did a few pro ones, but high school, which we used to cover, we'd go down when I was writing for the North County News and sit and watch for these these bowl games or these games where, and these kids were so emotional. I mean, just oh, yeah. they're kids, you know, and they they drop a pass and you they were inconsolable or. Just, you know, it's just five minutes left. There's just some adrenaline drive about being on the sidelines when that happens. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, especially once I became friends with the coaches and the players. You start caring the people about that him. I knew. And you, you do. It is very different watching from ground level. You're absolutely right about that. Football is probably better from higher up. But you get used to it. And you get used to how to read it. And the visceral nature of oh, being down there yes. and like the hits and just but also just being among the team you know because you know by the time this was happening i was really good friends with my friend uh tyler Fredrickson, who kicked the field goal that that beat usc when they were number three and then won the first bowl game for cal later that year or you know what and aaron aaron rogers was the quarterback there oh, right. too so you know as my friend was quarterback and he was really good and after that a year or two later steve levy um, you know, a couple, some really good friends of mine were playing then. And so it was pretty cool to be down there with them when they were playing. It does make a difference when you know them personally, too. I and mean, you root for them, but you, when you know them personally. Um, I got pretty close with Brian Cashman, who's still the general manager at the Yankees. The first full year he was general manager after uh, Bob Watson left. So it would have been 99 or after 98, somewhere. It was, it was mostly the 99 season because I was working for WFAS radio at the time. And I just got to know Brian. He was in his early 30s, and it was just cool hanging out with him, just chatting with him about music and anything. He's just like a regular guy. And I remember one day I was having lunch with him and, and some other people, and I said, Brian, I'm actually really worried that you're going to get fired because there'd be stories. Because Steinbrenner was a maniac. Steinbrenner was still Steinbrenner then. He was still had his faculties. And, and every day they'd be, Brian Cashman on the hot seat. And normally you'd just be like, that would suck if he got fired. But then I was like, my heart would start to race in my chest to see that like this guy is being dangled out there his life. Because I know how much he loved it. And I knew his wife and he just had a kid. And this wasn't just like, yeah, fire, you're fired. You know what I mean? Like George Steinbrenner, the crazy. It was people's lives being affected. Yeah, oh, yeah. That was really, really tough to do. And and my, my last anecdote about being on the sidelines. So the first time I ever was on the sidelines for a football game, a pro football game, um, and it wasn't many. It was like the first or second hit, and it happened probably about 20, 30 yards from me. So it wasn't right in front of me. I, I was – it was like a gunshot. I was actually physically frightened by it. And I remember turning around almost like saying, somebody get an ambulance. Somebody. And the guy pops up and flips the ball and runs back to the huddle. And it immediately occurred to me, this happens on every play. What I thought was this horrific car accident, that's what it sounds like. That's what it feels like. Yeah. Is just a tackle. And that's why when people say to me when these guys do dances, whatever they're doing, I'm like, that could be the, let that guy dance. That could be the last time that guy gets up and walks. Yeah, you know, I remember when a couple years after Aaron, after Marshawn had left, because Marshawn Lynch is the running back, you know, well, J.J. Arrington, and then Marshawn is a year younger. You know, he's the sort of backup running back during that second year. When I'm doing the uh, sideline, he's he's the, the backup running back, but he's running a lot in the games. But a couple years later, Javid Best is our starter, and he's he's really good. And, and Javid and Shane... Uh, Shane Vereen and the two who Shane Vereen played for the Giants for years, um, uh, but Shane Vereen and Javid Best were the running backs, if I'm remembering it right at this time. But uh, 
Javid was the fastest player in California. He was, he was the fastest. Uh, they were the one and two in California in high school for the hundred yard dash. They were both really, really fast. But Javid Best was the fastest player I've ever seen, and he was a complete stud for us. And then in this one game, I think it was Oregon State. I can't remember. He took the ball around the left end and went into the went for the end zone, and he dove and. The guy went to tackle him, but he dove over the guy, but the guy caught his legs as he went up, and it flipped him in the air. And, you know, we had walked down to the end zone. We were standing there, me, Roxy, a couple other guys. And he went up in the air, and he just – it was just – it wasn't intentional. He just – he went up, and the guy went to hit him, and yeah, it just – it flipped him. And he flew so high and then landed on his back, and he just didn't move. And it was it was terrifying, you know, and they eventually took him off, you know, and he had a pretty bad concussion. He ended up getting drafted in the first round, I think, and played for the, the Lions, but he kept having concussion troubles. And it sort of cut his whole career really short. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I remember the day it happened, like that first one, because... Yeah, like those things up close are pretty shocking. It is. It's like the hits can be really hard, and the. I mean, I, we were just standing. It was it happened right in front of us, like, twenty feet away. We're we're right there, and it just, it's a guy you know. It's a really yes. nice guy. You know, that's a. It's it's, it's a. You know, in in a good way, there's a visceral nature to being on the sideline that can be so much fun. But in the, at the same time, it's so exciting because it's so kind of terrifying in a way. And when it goes badly like that, you know, right. job it's the violence of it. I thought, know, I thought Cameron Crowe did a really great job depicting that in uh, Jerry Maguire, that scene where he, the guy's down and then he gets up and starts dancing. Well, yeah, at the end, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the dancing part, yeah. but I'm saying that that moment where he's down the family, they keep cutting to the family. Cause you know, that's what it is. It's not just him. It's, he's got family. He's got, you know, and, yeah, yeah. Um, did you watch yeah. the games yesterday? I did not. I don't watch football anymore. I know both overtime games, right? I I have not watched much all year because you know the the Raiders and the Packers had a down year, and so I didn't watch very much football this year. Um, usually, I you know addicted to it, but but yesterday I watched both games all day because you know there there were especially in the first game there was a bunch of Cal guys playing. Cam Jordan plays for the the Saints, and both C.J. Anderson and Jared Goff play for the Rams, and. I didn't know who to root for because I, I, really, I actually I, I love know, all things New Orleans. Cal? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh wow! And I love all things New Orleans. Uh, so I, you know, I'm usually Saints, but uh, Jared oh, played God. for Cal, yeah. and I really yeah. like Jared. Uh, and yeah, it was it, they were both incredible games though. Like it was really good all day. Not the greatest officiating all day, I have to say. Both of the games were kind of sketchy <laughs> yes, on the officiating front, yes. but wow, are they great games? Um, I think I'm, I've, I've always because of the the tuck rule thing with the Raiders. I've always hated the Patriots, but it's some combination of living in New York for so many years with uh, all my friends from Providence, you know, who are just obsessive Pats fans. Yeah, yeah, and the fact that Tom Brady is. I don't know, what is he, 85 now? <laughs> Somehow playing football at that level at the age of right, 203. Right. Of course, it is, if I may say, one of the reasons why I don't really love the game anymore. It's so much easier now 
because you can't really ever even breathe on a quarterback anymore. So you could at least stay upright. It would be lucky if you lasted to. You still get hit. Do you remember? Not as hard, when but you still George get hit. Blanda was considered like the grand old. How old was he? Thirty eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they, and that's because that's it. And he's like you two still years have to younger to, than Brady. You still have to be able to move and throw a ball. Well, I'm not saying, but I it's mean, easier now to survive at forty. But you still have 40. to have the athletic ability. Right now, the fact that you've got that guy playing at 41. A 41. Okay. And you have uh, Vince Carter, even maybe more ridiculous, in the NBA at, at well, 41. Vince, Car- Vince Carter's still playing basketball? Yes, at 41. What team's he on? Uh, God, he was on the Raptors a couple years ago. I'm not Again? Sure he is right now. Uh, no, not the Raptors. I'm sorry. He, he was on... I'm sorry, I'm sp- he was on Memphis for a while, and I'm spacing on where he is right now. I, I can't but believe he's still in the league. That Vince Carter... Crazy. Played with Steph Curry's dad. Oh, I'm sure on the he Raptors. did. Yeah, and with Steph Curry, not on the same team. So he's played against both of them too. Right. Um, how about that? When you like that is. It seems like he was on the Knicks. Oh no, the Nets. Was he on the Nets? He was on one of these New York teams, New Jersey. Yeah, I think so. Um, like 10, 12 years ago. <laughs> yeah, Vince Carter's not only still playing; he's still playing well. Like, not I mean that he's a starter and he's scoring a million points, but he's. A rotation player. Right. Isn't like Bill Walton's last days. How old was Kareem when he did his his tour? Do you remember that? I feel like Kareem was in his late thirties. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't there's no way he was forty one. No, no, because you can't a big man lasts longer in the in the, in uh in the pros. Because you don't you can size you can you know, you can't teach it and you, it's not as quick that you don't lose but your body breaks down, but you don't have to be able to run as much. Right. But uh the Guards don't last into their 40s. Vince Carter's 41 years I, old. That, that is crazy. Well, he's in good shape. He's in really, really good shape. I can't think of it. Like, you're right. I can't think of another player at, in the National Basketball Association that lasts no, you into his 40s. And can't. you won't be able to. There aren't any. There's none, right? Yeah. No, I think he's the oldest player. Yeah, and it's funny how we have the age. You know, that's happening now in baseball again is age has become prevalent again because because of steroids and human growth hormones and – uh, speed, which you can't take amphetamines anymore. There, it's changed the game immeasurably. When I was a kid, if you were thirty-four years old, that was that. That's the back end. Like you remember when Carl Skrumski was thirty-four years old, thirty-three? It looked like he was about sixty. Then you had Barry Bonds, who was like forty-two, who was playing like Babe Ruth. So obviously that was enhanced. But there were other examples, or Clemens, which was completely inhuman, throwing ninety-eight miles an hour at forty-two. But um, or even Nolan Ryan, probably. But there's there's a few examples of that. But for the most part now, it's gone the other way again, where now players are just not getting contracts if they're 30, 31 years old. And the problem was why there's going to be work stoppage. You can't be a free agent until you're 28, 29. Look at Machado and, and Harper, the two of the best players in baseball. They can't get a contract now because they want those big, long contracts. People are refusing to give a 26-year-old a 10-year contract because 36, they feel, is way past. Whereas, you know, A-Rod got a 10-year contract when he was 32, so it's a different world in baseball now. 34, 35 is like. But who did A Rod get that contract you know, from? Well, the Yankees. Were, yeah, yeah. Just for, the Yankees have always been a different thing. Yeah, that's true. Now the Red Sox are in the same boat yeah, with the money. Yeah, but those money. two teams had. Because that's a weird thing about baseball to me. The fact that there's no. And, and more power to the players for getting away with this. But the fact that there's the no salary cap thing. But it's to almost and, ostensibly a salary cap now. And no revenue have, sharing, though. There is. There's not revenue. as much, though. No, not as much. They're the only sport, you're right, that didn't. But, but the last bargain agreement, they put a ceiling. So in other words, you get double taxed if you're over 206 or $220 million, right, for the total payroll. You, get, you have to – it's 50 cents on the dollar. 
if you so in other words, if you, yeah, you yeah, sign a play, right? So the Yankees, who used to be, you know, they everybody thought they were going to sign Harper. They've said we're not going to go over that anymore, and they haven't. They barely are over it. Now I know there's two teams that are the Red Sox who just won the World Series, and the Dodgers, the team they beat in the World Series, are the two richest teams. But they pay a ridiculous amount of penalties for that, um, and then they have some revenue sharing, but it's not nearly well. The NBA was saved by the salary cap and revenue save, uh, 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 sharing because David Stern, when he took over that league, they didn't even have the NBA Finals on live. You had to oh, watch. I remember, yeah, you had to watch. Remember that? Parade, yeah, it was a dying, dying league, and of course, it was saved by Magic and Bird. But you know, that- I mean, it's funny. The uh, I just it's my experience as a kid from Oakland. You know, like when you're an A's fan, the fact that like there was times when I was a kid where the Yankees had two hundred million dollar rosters and the A's had. $30 million roster. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the early 90s. where and, Moneyball comes from. And and then our, on top of that, but it's before that, you know, and then on top of that, everyone great that we had would would get signed to massive free agent contracts by the Yankees, and we couldn't keep anybody either. Right. Because, you know, with... Or traded to, like Ricky With Henry. no revenue sharing back then, and there yeah. wasn't. There, there's some now, but it's still largely the rich teams are rich and the others aren't. You know, like the, the TV thing, it's not a TV deal. There's some revenue sharing in baseball, but correct. Like NBA has a TV deal. The problem with know. baseball is because it's a 162 game season. They yes, Nesson, uh, WGN. These teams have their own networks. Yeah, yeah. And you can't have that in football because it's only once a week, and they're all national contracts. So that's extra revenue share. I read somewhere the other day the Yankees have a 200 and like I said 205 million, which I think is about 20 or 30 million dollars less than the Red Sox um, payroll. But the point is. The, the Yankees make like four hundred million dollars a year. It, it, so it's not commensurate to their to their salaries. That we know. Well, it's just because, not right now. This one year or a few years right now, but it always has. It been. It always has been. There's a reason the Yankees had everyone when in Babe Ruth's day too, because they could just sign them. Right. In the '70s, yeah. when Steinbrenner came in, the funny thing about that was Charlie Finley, who owned the A's. When I was a kid, the Swinging A's were my favorite team, besides the Yankees. We all loved the A's. First of all, they were in the World Series every year when I was yeah, a little yeah, kid. Yeah, I remember. That's when I moved and, there. That's right, and. Um, they had just the coolest team. They all had long hair, mustaches, and they fought with each other. They fought with the manager. They fought with the owner. They fought with the league. They fought the other teams, and they won. They were brash about it. They had Reggie. When the Yankees got Reggie, I wanted the Yankees to have Reggie more than anything else because well, like, then, we just loved Reggie. Not just Reggie, but they got uh, Catfish, Catfish too. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, also, that's, that's what I mean. Holtzman. Like, you're an A's fan. We've just gone to three World Series in a row. We Correct. lost to Boston. But that's because your damn owner wouldn't pay anybody. There's no money there. Well, it's true. It's not that kind of money. It's yeah. not the same. You know, yeah, it's a, it's a that one period we had the A's, the Raiders, cool too. I love the A's, the Raiders, and the Warriors. Yeah, A's won seventy two, seventy three, seventy four. Warriors, Warriors won seventy five. Raiders won seventy six. That's right. I mean, that and the period, Raiders. Let me just say something about the Oakland Raiders, and this is forgotten all the time. And now we're into the sports talk. But here's the thing: the Oakland Raiders were in a championship game, the AFL or the NFL. For like 10 years. They, oh, yeah. They only won the one time. But they, you go back to the very first. First of all, they were in the second Super Bowl. Yeah. They lost to the Chiefs in the championship game the year the Chiefs went to the Super Bowl and lost to the Raiders. They lost to the Jets 
The Jets, the year the Jets won the Super Bowl in 68. 69, I don't think they got there. But then after that, when Madden came. All those years with the Steelers. Every they, year with the Steelers, they were yeah. they lost. Or the Colts, they lost to the Colts in the 71, the one that the Colts won on the field goal, Super Bowl five. It's Go and look at the history of the Oakland Raiders. Oh, no, they're incredible. Incredible run. And they, and they and they won. I mean, they only they didn't win the one. They won 76. Of that, that, that Madden run. 80, 83. I mean. They won yeah. three, three in a row. They yeah, won yeah. three in the— They the, were the first wild card team to win. Yeah, I mean— that was in '80 when they were they yes. beat the Eagles. The Eagles, right? Uh, yeah, they were. I mean, and also they're really interesting. A lot of people hate Al Davis, but one of the things I thought was interesting about Al Davis was like, football teams are generally owned by uh, owners of ketchup companies. You know, yes. like somebody who owns like the Chiefs or the Hunt people. You know, sure. like massive corporations or hereditary money that owns football teams. Uh, Al Davis was a football coach. He yes, was he the was. coach. He's the only guy ever to play. Coach, head coach, own a team. He was the commissioner of the AFL. Yeah. The reason there is a modern NFL is because he forced it as the commissioner of the AFL. Sure but did. also as the owner, I mean, as the coach of the of the Raiders, he parlayed that into, uh, what, are the, 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 what do they call him? The chairman of the managing general partner. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, right, he, right. He, he buys the team in a way by putting a partnership together out from under the owners and becomes the owner of the – but it's not a guy who owned a football, a ketchup company or a, no. a car company. And this guy know. ruled with an iron fist. He did everything. He drafted every player. He picked every coach. He negotiated face-to-face every salary. You got Have I ever told you about that book I read a few years ago called Badasses, The History of the Oakland Raiders? Oh, yeah, I have that book. I read that oh, book. Oh, my God. It's so good. I mean, he was – It a, was literally run like a piracy. But they were he's like, a guy oh, who was like a coach. Who became the owner of a team, but you know, so it's tough. They don't, they don't, they didn't have that kind of money either. You know, they nope. were they were trying to get luxury boxes, and it's hard for the city of Oakland because they don't have money in the city of Oakland either. They don't do it. He moves to L.A. and that stadium, by the way, and they, I think they call that 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 whole upper area Mount uh, Davis because it was they built that for football and they later, sold it out much for much later, much later. Alameda County. When they came stadium. back, they built that. That's right, right. Because yeah, that's that stadium that he was asking for luxury boxes in 1980, 1970 something. Right. That is the same stadium the Raiders and the A's playing now. It's the same stadium, right? Yeah. The, the one he was trying they, to get improvements like made a, then. Yeah. Right. Well, when the A's. Uh, when they finally came back from LA in the mid '80s, he wanted, uh, you know, he didn't want the the baseball stadium shape anymore. So they built that Mount Davis thing uh, to have a sideline there. Right. Um, but you know, so the they're the only football baseball team still sharing a stadium left, and it's that same fucking stadium. the The locker rooms flood with pit. The, the, poor A's and Raiders have been playing in this. Yeah, I've been in that ball. I mean, uh, not for football, but for baseball. In fact, the the Warriors are essentially playing in the same stadium too. They just refit it, and it's been re, re, refurbished into Oracle. But it's the same building that they were playing in in seven in the seventies when they won. Is that the one? The what's the what was the name of that place? Probably? The Alameda County Coliseum. No, no, the basketball place. The Alameda County Coliseum Arena. Because there was there's a there's a, a, a Stones bootleg. Yeah, yeah. From that. Building, I think it was the first place they played on the '69, the famous '69. Yeah, yeah. There's another, in there's a, we didn't get it on until Oakland is the band one, one by the band. There's yeah, a yeah. lot of, or that's maybe that's a Stone one. We didn't get it on until Oakland. Yeah, that's the same building. That's it. It's that's Oracle. They okay. just refinished it, like they refurbished it and renamed it Oracle. But it's that same building that I grew up going to see concerts and Warriors games in when I was a little kid. 
their next year they moved to the, across the to the Chase Center, but they've been playing in that same building. You know, when you get too angry at the Raiders and the Warriors for leaving, you know, keep in mind that like when was your football stadium or your basketball stadium or your baseball stadium built? Because they're playing in the same one they were playing in in the 70s and late 60s. Right, right. You but know? it's probably the oldest except for Fenway and Wrigley in baseball because almost every other team, well, also uh, Chavez Ravine where the Dodgers play. They've been playing there since 58. Yeah. But other than but those that, have really, those are beautiful stadiums that have been refitted. Yeah, yeah. Like they Fenway did Yankee is a Stadium great place 70s. to see a game. Yankee Stadium is a great place to see a game. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the new one's great. The new one's great too. But I mean, Fenway, they re- Fenway's a beautiful place to see a game. Yeah, I agreed. And 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 they they put all the luxury boxes and the green monster seats and everything you need yeah, to yeah. do. But that, the back area and the bathrooms are still a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they got to put some stairs in there. It's but the bathrooms ramps. in the locker rooms are a disaster for the A's and the Raiders. Are they really? Oh yeah, that's where. When I say there was raw sewage flooding up through the <laughs> locker room, I don't mean the the, the fans. I mean the the, for the players. Yeah. Yeah, and of was, course, back in the day, the other thing about Al Davis is everybody thought he was spying on every, everybody. It was funny. He would he would sometimes hire a plane to just go over the practice thing for no other reason but to freak the other team out. <laughs> everybody was completely convinced he was bugging the uh, Al Davis is one of the great characters in the history of American sport in the history of American business. He's 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 a a true renegade and a true individualist and a guy who built the he's a Brooklyn kid. Who built the whole idea of going out to California, you know, and doing that that rugged new world thing? I, I just, it's a great story. It really yeah, is. he's a really interesting character, and that team was easy to love as a as a kid in Oakland. The A's too, but I mean, later when when I was living in L.A. and uh, they started to when they went back to Oakland, uh, we would we would like meet up at the Viper Room and go over to Burbank Airport. And hop on the Southwest, forty-five minutes to Oakland. Uh, you're right next to the stadium at the airport. Just over to the stadium. It was such a vibe there. Like it was like the whole town came out, camped out in the parking lots, and it was just this very, very Oakland thing. And uh, as long as you were Oakland, everybody was okay. And and it was, it was this big black hole, like you know, like they, mm-hmm. like it looks like on TV. But it was very much like a family, a dysfunctional biker gang of a family, but right. fucking awesome. Yeah, it um, is. There's an organic aspect to the Raiders that, interestingly enough, diametrically opposed to that is the San Francisco button-down, yeah, high-profile, you know, you know, especially when they were winning those Super Bowls later on with. Bill Walsh, who was sort of professorial, and uh, and Joe Montana, who looked like you're, you know, you you allow your daughter to date. You know, these were different people compared to, you know, the Snake and Matuzak and yeah. some of the great characters in the history of uh, Phil Filippiano spoke. He's a Jersey kid. When he was still playing for the Raiders, he spoke at my basketball uh, league. The Madden league. linebacker. Phil yeah, Filippiano? Yeah, Phil yeah. Filippiano. Yeah. He spoke. He cursed through the whole thing. We got such a kick out of that. He was speaking to a bunch of Catholic League kids, and he's cursing. <laughs> and it was, it was right after that famous where he interfered with Ron Fran- Listen, people, before the, the, the Patriots won every Super Bowl, have been in every Super Bowl for the last two decades, they were a sad sack franchise. They had one shot in 1976 to go to the Super Bowl. And I have to say, even though I was a Raider 
I always love the Raiders because of their aura. We were all rooting for the Patriots because they were the underdog and the Raiders were there every year. But this was the Raiders' chance to finally go to the Super Bowl and win it. And they did, of course. But there's a play in that game, in the championship game, where Bill Filippiano absolutely mugs Ron Francis, uh, uh, Russ Francis, on uh, the tight end for the Patriots. It, on a fourth down play, it was early in the fourth quarter, so they had a chance to overcome it. But I'm saying that's the iconic play. And, of course, Filippiano, <laughs> when he talked to him, he's like, I absolutely tackled him. I'm allowed to do anything I want. This is back when the league was that way. And I got such a kick out of Phil. Yeah, what a great guy. And he was the quintessential Raider style. All those guys had absolutely no boundaries, and that was fun. You know, I remember that uh, <laughs> I, didn't wa- I didn't see that game on TV because we were out – for some reason in Berkeley but I remember where we were because we were in the parking lot of Spanger's Fish Restaurant like down by the bay at the foot of University below San Pablo we are at Spanger's in the parking lot my mom is inside getting something my dad and I are in the car and we're on we're listening to it on the radio and I think it was a bootleg in like a quarterback run that like eventually won the game for the Raiders and I remember hearing it I don't remember what the play was, but I remember being in the parking lot and they won and we jumped up and all over the parking lot, people are jumping up and like, it's, it's, it's such a Bay area thing. Yeah, like yeah. we just thought we were in the car listening to the game, but when we, when it's over and we run and we're jumping, I'm like, I don't know how old I am, like 10, 12 and, uh, all around the parking lot, people are jumping up and down because it's, they're all doing the same thing. We are, you know, it was a, that's a cool story. It's even better than watching it in that sense. And, and by the way, it, just to make this point, the Raiders, were completely rooked on the Immaculate Reception, famous catch of the Rocky, uh, uh, Franco Harris. Now we're getting deep in the woods, where the Raiders had lost a championship game, uh, or, the, or I think it was the second round, to the Steelers. Before the Steelers went on to win all those Super Bowls, they, they beat the Raiders. A lot of people forget this. I think Stabler was either a rookie or had never played before. Somebody got, LaMonica or somebody got hurt. They put Stabler in, and he ran like 60 yards to score the lead touchdown with 49 seconds or 50 seconds left before the crazy Immaculate Reception. Nobody remembers that because of the Immaculate Reception. And to this day, every Raider will tell you that, and, and no one's ever really, Franco Harris is not going to tell, that the ball bounced off the ground. There's a million things that could have gone wrong. But not with just that the ball bounced catch, off the ground, but that it was tipped. Because, that hit by a, a, because, a member of the Steelers. Because you're not allowed to tip. You weren't allowed to catch a tipped ball back then. That you couldn't, right. If it hit one of your, the players, if it hit a player and didn't catch it and it bounced off of him and you're another player on your team caught it, that was disallowed. Either you couldn't catch it or you couldn't advance it, but either way, it couldn't have been a touchdown like it was. <laughs> yeah, and, and that was no time left on the clock, and it's a famous mo- moment in the history of rock, of rock and roll. And the worst thing is the camera misses it. So there's almost no film of it. You see him running towards it. You can see him with the ball. The but NFL you don't, films, you don't yeah, see you don't. Ball. You can't see what really happens. Yeah. Um, they missed the middle of that play. So the Raiders had it coming. And then, of course, as, as uh, Adam mentions, years later, they got rooked by the, the tuck play, which is – I just can't even believe that. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, I found myself rooting for the Patriots yesterday. I've um, just never been a Kansas City fan, really. It's funny. I love Missouri, but I don't like the Kansas City Chiefs. I don't know why. I guess because they've been playing the Raiders all these years. But it's the first oh, – right. one of the that first times I've rivalry. ever really cheered for the Patriots in my life. I often am sort of middling about it because if Greg or some or Pat or some of the Providence guys are over, you know, I want them to be happy. Yeah, go along. As long as they're not playing one of my teams. So I've often been, you know, okay with the Pats, but I've really actually rooted for them. Um, But I found myself wanting to like the Pats to win. Something about like the ridiculousness of Tom Brady being that good at this age, which is 
ridiculous. With for years with guys like they're not getting they don't pick number two or three. They pick the end of the draft every year. And they've got these guys. Like their wide receivers are Hogan, who didn't he used to be the quarterback at Stanford? Oh, yeah. And Edelman. And then somehow they got Bronk, uh, Gronkowski still playing. But, you know, their they're receivers for this insane quarterback are Edelman and Hogan. No, not to, I mean, it wasn't Edelman was a cornerback or a quarterback in college, too, like Kent State or somewhere. Neither of these guys are like pedigree wide receivers. I mean, there's one year where he had, what's his name, the guy from Detroit that played for Detroit, uh, Randy Moss at one point. Didn't he have Randy Moss near the end of his career? Yeah, well, you're talking about the guy from the Vikings. And then, he, and then also he went on the Raiders. Yeah, Randy, Randy Moss. Moss. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, that was Randy a team Moss that was year. undefeated, lost to the Giants. I mean, but uh, yeah. other than that, he's not like he's had a ton of no. all stars playing with no. him, really. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy how uh, that team is ridiculous. And yeah. they're supposed to suck this year. I, I attribute it all to the cheating. I mean, they didn't cheat much yesterday. I mean, it uh, that we know of. No, I didn't watch. What the like game, spying so no on the thing? I mean, I what no big idea. deal? <laughs> so you're like stealing signs. or the balls? I don't know something about the balls being deflated. I, I like I said, I stopped watching the NFL years ago. It lost its cachet for me. I don't like the way the games played. I hate the replay. The rule changes seem to be very arbitrary, and they leave too much to the referees to decide what is a late hit or where the hit is or who is that a catch? Or I'm not really sure what I'm watching Listen anymore. To you. No, I'm serious. I'm an old man now. I'm gonna, oh, I did want to say you this. You got to do this. These guys are the guys are having life changing injuries for the rest of their lives. In fact, they've been having them all along, but they've been hiding it. You had yes. to change the game. Oh, I don't agree. Yeah, and I and like, I read this book. Uh, a few years ago, and his name's escaping me now, which I should be shot because he's a, a, a author friend of mine. Uh, oh, Steve Allman wrote a book called uh, um, A Case Against the NFL or something like that, or uh, Against Football, I think it was called. And it's beautifully written because he's a big Raiders fan, and he was a huge football fan. And he just s- started to read the statistics and realize what the NFL was doing to hide these, these <laughs> horrific injuries. Uh, not only the brain injuries, which is really terrible, people committing suicide and murder, and, but also the just the injuries that they would shoot these guys up and let them play through where they just – a lot of these guys like Earl Campbell or couldn't even walk. I mean they're crippled. And I understand they go in it with eyes open and, and it's a job. Sort of. Else. Yeah, but the NFL really did cover a lot of that up. And, and, he, and he basically said in this book, I just – I can't justify watching this anymore. And I'm not one of those people who say, well, I'm not going to eat this because they catch the tuna with this and kill dolphins. You start running down that, that Yes, path. you are. It's You're not, a vegetarian. No, I'm not. My wife's a vegan. I'm, I, I, okay, okay. I do. I, I eat uh, tuna fish. But, I mean, I've never been one of those guys like, I'm not going to drink Pepsi anymore because they, they give money to the – whatever. So if you go down that road, it's hard because you run out of stuff to buy. But after a while, I was cursing at the TV one day watching a game. And not about the team doing badly, but just the way the game was. Why are that? What? That's the rule now? I would get crazy. My wife finally walked in the room and said, okay, I could hear from the other room. Why are you watching this again? Because this doesn't seem like you're enjoying this at all. You're just yelling about how things aren't the way they used to be. You're like this old crotchety. So I said, that's a good point. I'm not going to be a hypocrite anymore. I'll stop watching because it's one of those things where it's Sunday. I'm going to watch football. Of course I'm going to. Like I was going to come and record with you yesterday. And you're like, come on. It's championship football games. Well, like, I actually realized I haven't seen any football all year really. A little, just a tiny bit here and there. But I, I realized I love football. I want to watch football all day. And I, I, I did. I did yesterday. But, you know, it's like. Good for you. I mean, I just don't enjoy the game as much. Everybody goes through their periods. And I, maybe I'll start watching again in a few years. But I've been pretty good. That first half year was like going through withdrawals for me 
you know, and, and then, then I forgot. Then once you're away for a year, you don't know who the players are anymore. You don't know who the coaches are. You know what the storylines are. It's like anything else, like a narrative you have to follow. And, um, and then it just, I forgot. So when people would say to me, oh, did you see that game last night? And I would even forget it was Sunday or Monday night. Yeah, yeah, you know, I and mean, that football's you know it's on almost every night now. But. I mean, you can come back. My feeling is you'll enjoy it if you come back. It's still football; it's not the same. But we don't need to be killing people to enjoy our sports. And like, it's the same thing with hockey. I love hockey, but you can throw all the fights out of the game. But oh yes, I agree hundred percent. I've never been a big hockey fan. But let me just make this point. Yesterday, without getting too deep into it, yesterday you had the four top offenses. I think in both conferences, right, playing against each other. I don't know and if they're top the offenses. You had terrible. You had the number one team, the number two team in both in both conferences. Right, but I'm saying the offenses. But all four of those teams, I think the Rams have a pretty good defense. But all, for the most part, three of those teams, New Orleans, the Patriots, well, as you've mentioned, it's basically Brady, um, and, and certainly the Chiefs, had no defense. They were just outscoring teams, scoring 40 points, which ended up being, what was it, like the final 41-31 or 37-31 in the AFC game? And I don't know what the other one was. The AFC one was a little, no, because it was, I don't know, it was 14 to nothing at the half, though, wasn't it? I mean, it wasn't like. I saw the final was 37-31. That's, that's a really? lot of points for a championship game. A lot of it was in the last few minutes. There was some incredible clutch plays in the last few minutes because it was just 14 nothing in the first half. And then after, then the, uh, the Chiefs. Chiefs scored 21, not 21 straight points, but they outscored them 21 to three for a while. And it was 21-17. Uh, with about uh, 10 minutes left in the game. And then the the Patriots scored to make it 24-21 with about... So now everybody scores. It's like a video game now. That's what I'm saying. If 10 minutes left, that's how many points? If it's 21-17 and it ended up 37-12, well, they went to overtime. That's yeah, yeah. a lot of points in the last 10 minutes of a football, in a pro football game. So I'm just, yeah. I mean... Scoring is the way Americans love everything. So every, whether it's baseball too with the DH, lowering the mounds, juicing up the ball, all the ballparks are smaller, the home run, the touchdown, you know, they always say that's why soccer is not as popular or hockey. There's not enough scoring. People love scoring. I get that, you know. But it seems to me, except for that one Seahawk team a few years ago, almost every team that wins the Super Bowl is like the super scoring offensive juggernauts, which again is fine. Sort of, but it was 17-7 it was at the end of the third quarter. That game last night. I mean, it went back and forth in the last five minutes of the game. Incredible clutch plays. Right. I mean, the fourth quarter score was 24 to 14. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, well, uh, on the side of the Chiefs. I mean, right. but it was all like, but that, that's a 14, 17-7 a game at the end of three quarters. You know, and, and it is pretty tight. You know, and uh, it was just some brilliant play on both sides in the fourth quarter. You know, uh from the quarterbacks, the running, it's just a great, great play. Now they wait two weeks still to play Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you want to play some music in this podcast? <laughs> yes, I think playing some music is a great idea, and I know just what to play. All right. Uh, we went. Uh, we were out on tour this summer, uh, all around America, and then uh, we took October, the first part of October, off so we could do Underwater Sunshine Festival here in New York. And then uh, at the end of October, we went over to England, played uh, Dublin at Three Arena, and then uh, London at the O2, the Millennium Dome, the old Millennium Dome. And then we stayed a couple extra days, and we went over to Air Studios. Only four of us, me, Immer, Jim, and Millard. And 
we hooked up with Vince Mendoza, who you know, we worked with Vince years ago. There was a thing where they were asking different bands to play these shows. I can't remember who was arranging them in different cities with an orchestra. And they, one of the bands they asked to do the L.A. one at the Disney Symphony Hall, the Frank Gehry building, was us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said I will do it on one condition. If you can get us, Vince Mendoza, to do the orchestral arrangements, then I will do this show. Um, and we've mentioned this on an earlier podcast, but you should also reiterate, Vince, you were first, I think, introduced to Vince from his brilliant work with Joni Mitchell. On yes, he two did records. two albums with Joni Mitchell. One, Both Sides Now, which is all standards except the end of each side has one Joni song. I think she has A Case of You and, well, Both Sides both Now, sides obviously. Now, right. And then after that, they did an album called Travelogue, which is the album, I think I've probably told the story on here. We were mixing Hard Candy and we were in the studio and we, were, we, were, we had done our version of Big Yellow Taxi, not the one you hear on the radio, but our, sounds like our acoustic version that we play live. The one we, that's a remix that you all heard. But Joni was in there mixing and she came by and I, we played her uh, Big Yellow Big Taxi, Taxi yeah. and she loved it and she got excited and she asked me if I wanted to come hang out and listen to some of her stuff that she was working on so I went down to the the mixing room uh, at Cello with her and she started playing me songs from Travelogue and we sat there for like an hour she played me a lot of the record after we sat there and talked and she played me song after song and it was so incredible and I was so blown away by the arrangements because this guy is a genius and uh so cut to a few years later, I agree. I say, I'll do this if you can get us Vince Mendoza. And I don't know what year this is. I'm thinking it's probably, it's 2005. Sorry. Oh, wow. That... Um, wow. It's a while ago. Hmm. Um, so we did a bunch of songs, uh, including a couple that had never been released. Um, one of which was Chelsea. Uh, which we did in an arrangement with just me and a seven-two-piece orchestra and a full orchestra. And another one we did was August and Everything After, which is a song that we had started recording on the first record, but I could not get a good take of it. And in looking back on it later, I realized because there were just a bunch of parts of it that were poorly written, and I just didn't like it. Um, And so I sort of tossed it aside. It wasn't worth... I thought about it a little bit when we were doing Recovering the Satellites, but I eventually decided just to dump it because I just thought it had so many weaknesses in the in the lyrics that I wasn't happy with it. But uh, Vince had heard a version of it, I think, and he was really interested in doing it. So I sat down and rewrote parts of it. Back in 2005. Yeah. And reworked the song until it was something I felt better about. But we didn't record that show, really, except for the board tapes. So, And we've never been able to get back and do it. And earlier last year, Amazon came to us. Because as much as they do Amazon original TV shows, they also do Amazon original music. And they wanted to record a song with us. And their idea was, we should do uh, Long December and release it in December. December and December. Which, which, while it sounds like a great sales tactic to me wasn't particularly I don't think the song would be particularly interesting with strings or an orchestra there wasn't anything I just I think that song is great the way it is and I don't think it needs anything and I don't think it would it's going to do that much for it but what I said to them is no I have a better idea if I can sit down and really try and finish it and change a couple moments that I still think are are flawed we should do August and everything after we have this arrangement already from Vince Mendoza that's really cool and it's never been released and you know 
although I really won't, I don't think of it as a song from that record because it was never good enough to be on the record back right. then. Uh, it is the title of a very famous record. You know, it <laughs> does I, share the title of a famous record, and the lyrics for it, some of them, are on the cover of that record. That's right. Now, I will say this, though. Uh, when I first got... May I? Because yeah, I have a history, a mini history with this song. So when I first interviewed Adam, we talked briefly about August and Everything After because, obviously, it's something you want to ask a songwriter because it's the name of the record. The lyrics, as you said, mysteriously are on the cover of the record and then it's not on the record I had a bootleg from either New Orleans or Dallas or Denver or something where Adam plays the song all the way through different lyrics because I realized when you had given me years later when we met and we started working on the book you gave me the 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 the, the board recordings for the Disney show how different you had already made it but I had this great bootleg of you playing the piano, and you could tell you're angry because you're making mistakes. But you sing the song, and I, I just thought that was the most miraculous thing because I'm like, well, I'm hearing the song. This had some stuff in it where it sounded good. It's why, like, you found that recording of me playing it. But there probably are only two or three in all the hundreds and hundreds of gigs we played over all those oh, I, years. Yes, there are probably maybe two or three times of me playing that song because I'd get to playing it, and I'd be like, it's just not working. It was never great. To play because it was never great, but it had a catch. There was something about that—the mystery of it, the myth behind the song. Well, also the song it had the music's good in some ways. It needed and a little a lot change. Of those lyrics are really good. A lot too. of them are too, but they but not. You can't have some of the lyrics of a song be good and some of them be shit, well, especially an epic like that. Yeah, it just, you cannot have huge holes in a song like that, and that song had some huge holes. But the reworking that we did when we played the Disney Hall show. Solved a lot of that for me, if not all of it. The arrangement that Vince came up with ah, yes. was perfect because I had been playing it as a lumbering piano song, and Vince took the piano right out of it and That's turned true. it into. Yeah. It's a very unique arrangement. It's not the whole band and it's not the whole orchestra. It's it's very specific parts of each. The band is just a very strange grouping. It's pedal steel, bass, and drums, and me. But pedal steel, bass, and drums not a grouping you usually here. And in the orchestra, he got rid of all the brass and the woodwinds. It's just the string section, the whole string section, you know, 22, 23 pieces of strings, 24 pieces, and then one woodwind, uh, a cor anglais, which is a large, it's in the oboe family. It's but it's maybe one and a half, two times as big as an oboe. It's a large oboe called a cor anglais. And it's, it's just the strings and the cor anglais. And in the band, it's just pedal steel bass and drums and then me and uh i feel like then he and i came up with this turnaround that changes the end of some of the verses some of the later verses that made all the difference in the world musical Um, yeah um and uh it turned into something i was really proud of and when we went to record it this time I just got the last little details flipped around on some small parts. So, if you are wondering about some new music from Counting Crows, and you haven't seen it in a while, well, I'm at home right now working on some new songs. Uh, and I hope that we'll record this year, since we're probably not going to tour this summer in any large-scale way. Because I want to make a record. But, today being Wednesday, when you're hearing this, January 23rd, I think tonight at midnight, Amazon's going to release this song, but we're going to sneak it in right here at the end of this podcast Perfect, and play it for you right now. So this is the first, this is a big deal. This is the premiere of this song really. Um, 
One of my favorite songs. And we recorded this at Air Studios, uh, George Martin Studio in London. And there's going to be a company video with this at some point? Yes, there is a video. We filmed it as well. Ehud was over there and filmed it. Uh, and there's a video to go along with it, and that'll be out as well. Uh, so anyways, this is uh, Counting Crows and London Symphony Orchestra, parts of it. Uh, Vince Mendoza conducting. This is uh, August and Everything After. Enjoy. Everybody else has got some place to go She makes a little motion with her head Rolls over, says she's gonna sleep for a couple minutes more I said I'm sorry to Maria For the cold-hearted thing that I have done Said, I'm sorry by now At least once To just about everyone She says I have forgotten What I'm supposed to do today And it slips in my mind What I'm supposed to say We're getting older and older And older and older And always a little further out of the way You look into her eyes And it's more than your heart will allow In August and everything after You get a little less than you expected somehow Well, I stumbled into Washington Square Just as the sun began to rise And I walked across the lawn to the cathedral And I lay down in the shadow of St. Mary's in the sky I'm just one of these late model children waiting for No sign of Elvis in San Francisco It's just me And I'm playing this rock and roll thing She wants to be just like me And I want every damn thing that I can see You know one day Your daddy's little angel The next day you're Everything he wanted you to be They dress you up in white satin And they give you your very own pair of wings 
August and everything after I'm after everything Well, I got my reservations And I got my seven million dollar home Got the number of some girl in North Dakota Who's always wide awake So I never have to spend the night alone yeah, I got this nasty little habit of peeking down the shirts of all The little girls as they pass me by And I know you wonder When it all catches up to me And they finally bring me down Think I'm gonna cry? Well, listen, I already got my disease. So get your fucking filthy hands off of me. I hope you weren't expecting me to be crucified. The best that they can do is just to hang me from the nearest tree. Yeah, it's midnight in San Francisco And I am waiting here For Jesus on my knees In August and everything after I need somebody else To bleed for me Yeah In August and everything after I need somebody else To bleed for me Well I came down from San Francisco Cause I had confidence In a military mind Now everyone I know is turning showgirl And dancing with their shirt off in some Las Vegas hotel line So I'm going to New York City Cause it got a little sleazy here for me And when I find myself alone You know I'm never going home You make the changes, the changes that you need But I no longer know how to pray I live in a dog town and it's a Dalmatian parade I change my spots over and over But they never seem to fade The last remaining Indian Looking for the place Where the buffalo roam In August and everything after Man, them buffalo Never coming home In August and everything after 
man in Buffalo They ain't never coming home No, in August and everything after Man in Buffalo ain't never coming home you want to say something uh no i got nothing i uh, okay i got a few things i mean go ahead you start I'll, I'll, all right I'll so it's spectacular that 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 string arrangement first of all i i didn't want to say this last time when we talked about it because it seemed almost unfair uh when adam first played this for me a few months ago we had talked about it on the podcast and we were both like oh we can't play it <laughs> <laughs> i felt terrible but i did want to say uh, and he hates when I do this, but I got to say it. Um, it's one of the great thrills of my professional life to do this podcast with him and to work on the book with him. But to sit now for three times, I think, and one time we went through Ehud's video, to listen to this song that, like I said, over the years of my loving Counting Crows and sort of dissecting the lyrics and loving uh, the style of the band and, and, and everything, and this song kind of being like a mysterious song, to sit and listen to this in the same room with him and to discuss the little things that Vince did to make it even more miraculous and the little lyrical flourishes that he did to change it over the, the years, over the months, is, is really a great treat. So I want to say that off the top. Second of all, Vince Mendoza did, and Adam pointed this out to me the first time we heard it, and just now, the little things he does to make, to build the drama and give density to what's going on it is just, it's, it's so musical and so dramatic the lyrics in themselves, the storyline is is opaque and it's got a lot of uh, you know metaphor in it, but it it flows beautifully because Mendoza really adds a lot to the density of it. He gives it sort of like a, a conveyance. He gives it a way to move from next verse to next verse because it flows sort of like that, like a Dylan song. There's not any real chorus to it. I think the strings there really do add to that aspect of what you did lyrically. And the way the song moves in in sort of a direction, a geographical direction, a a, a, a time movement direction, I think that is a a real talent of what he added to the song. Yeah, I love his concept, the arrangement choices he made, like to go with uh, just the pedal steel being the only sort of melody instrument playing on the uh, the band side of it. Right, you know? and bravo to. Millard and, and Jim Dog and F- F- Immer, they're so understated in it. They're just rolling it along, and they're allowing the strings to have that space to do all that stuff. And, of course, you on top of it telling the tale. So it's just um, – and your vocal is fantastic. I've always loved the melody of that song, uh, which is why maybe I guess 
you kept trying to make it work because I think the melody I know you could always get the lyrics to work I guess but the melody of that song is, is very strong because it sort of carries it along you know you yeah, know I like for, the melody a lot I like the concept of it I like the melody of it I just didn't like some of the lyrics um, but they're gone now and I like it now well one of my I've, I've, I've I brought this up in the past probably on this podcast too and I love the you know um you know, I'm going to New York City because things got a little um, sleazy here for me. Yeah, uh, I love. Which was that. not in the original song. No. Yeah. And it makes sense. Yeah, narratively. And I will say this also: the last thing I want to comment on, and I might have mentioned this before, but you know, we talked about Vince Mendoza. Really, those. Please do yourself a favor and listen to those Joni Mitchell records if you haven't already. We've touched upon them. We even played some of them. Yeah, we did. I really like Vince's. Uh, arrangements with us because he comes from a different sensibility than the normal string arranger guy he's not a uh he's a, you know he comes from a jazz background you right. know which is, I, I suppose is why Joni was using him but you know vince's work is mostly in uh jazz compositions and uh yeah i think he's brilliant i really really do dig the way he works and uh his sense of melody and composition and harmony the way the way he just like I wish we'd. I wish I really would love to do more of those songs that we recorded. Then you know, because his his concepts for the other songs as well were really brilliant. I loved what he did with uh, Amy hit the atmosphere. I thought that was so cool what he did with that. And uh, I'm trying to think what the other ones. Oh, the other one was Chelsea recovering, Chelsea's recovering, recovering the really sound. fantastic yeah. because I think you just sing with the strings for like the first verse and then the band kicks in at that point. Yeah, I mean, we did a number of songs. The Rain King arrangement was really cool. The Chelsea one, which was just me and the orchestra, was beautiful. Um, we did, you know, some very famous songs like Around Here and Mr. Jones, uh, Rain King. But we also did... Black and Blue, Recovering the Satellites, Amy Hit the Atmosphere, uh, Children in Bloom. That's right. Yeah, uh, Bloom, New so. Frontier, Ghost Train, St. Robinson in his Cadillac Dream, Good Night Elizabeth. You know, there was a, uh, it was a cool group of songs. I wish we could go back and do more of that stuff because I thought that work he did was so brilliant compositionally and it was so hard to learn it and to play with an orchestra, but it was so... I mean, it's so structured when you play with an orchestra in a way that we're not used to. And that was hard for us to learn. But by the same token, we, we found a ways to put the unstructured nature of our stuff, uh, uh, an improvisational section in Round Here or in uh, Rain King. We found a way to put those things into the, the versions that we did with him so that they had that, that notion of Counting Crows, you know, sort of shoehorned into the yeah. orchestral arrangements as well. You know, I thought that was really, we all kind of found ways to meet each other in the middle on, on what we wanted to do or not meet each other in the middle, to meet each other on the fringes more like that, you know, cause it was, you know, work on the outside of where we're all used to being and, uh, very satisfying for that. But I'm, I'm just really happy that we did something fresh and, and original this year, you know, and I'm, well, bravo. I hope you all find it. Thanks to Amazon for... And congratulations to County Crows fans, who I know a lot of them listen to this show for right, you know, for obvious reasons. Yeah, and now they want have... to hear this song for a long time. And yeah. here it is. So. And here it is. And you can get it tonight at midnight. And um, if you are listening on the 23rd of January, but if you listen in a, a week later, or whenever you get to this podcast, it's out. So check it out. And if you listen to it right now, you already have it. 
So <laughs> you already heard it. Yeah, yeah. But you'll um, be able to get it. Go clean. to Amazon and get a one you can download. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you could add it to your collection. Well, um, thanks for sharing that. And uh, it was kind of a last minute thing because we got talking about a, a myriad of things. And I said to Adam, "I'm running out of time in this podcast." And uh, I got up and went to the other room and called and said, "Is it okay if we do this?" <laughs> Are we going to get in trouble or can I just do it? Inside baseball, I love it. I was told it was okay. It's so uh, good. I really good. want to thank uh, Amazon for and Vince. Yeah, that is really, but, uh, really cool. I'm really happy. So well, anyways, congrats. we should probably get out of here. Indeed. So this is the Underwater Sunshine podcast, and this was one of my favorite ones. We played one song. I, don't, I think this is a record. Yeah, I think I'm going to call this podcast August and Everything after we get done talking about shit. <laughs> That's good. All right, then. We'll see you next week. Peace. Late.